Countrywide on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by the Irish Farmers Journal. Now with our highest ever readership of 321,000 weekly readers. Now on RTE Radio 1, time for this week's Countrywide with Marty Morrissey. Countrywide on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by the Irish Farmers Journal, bringing you expert commentary and analysis on what your future farm payments will look like. Good morning, I'm Marty Morrissey and on this week's Countrywide we hear one woman's story about finding her family history in a Swinford pub, we look back on the history of the Land Commission and we look forward to spring calving 2022. But first... The rhythm of the year is on the cusp of change in farmyards across the country. The winter lull is giving way to spring, and we'll be talking about spring calving later in the programme. But while it lasts, this winter lull has given Hannah Quinn Mulligan a chance to chat to her grandmother Catherine about a dusty old bottle found on a shelf in the shed, memories of her great-grandparents farming, and old remedies for sick animals. Good girls. Hello, hello. I didn't think I'd see you in the shed today. I'm just, um, sure we were talking about it this morning. I'm just clipping the cows' backs and then I'm going to put the pour on for them to delouse them because the ladies have started itching quite a bit and their favourite place to itch is the water trough. Yes, I see that, yes. And the corresponding result is usually a cow pat in the water trough. I know. <laughs> not the most pleasant first thing in the morning, is it? No, no it's not no, the nicest no. thing to clean out. No, no, no. What's that you got with you then? Oh, well, we were talking about um, animal medicines in the old days. And I die now. Anything that was uh, poisonous would be in a special bottle. So this is the special iodine and, bottle, and is it? So I found the, the bottle. Look and, at that. Uh, it's a rib defect, isn't it? Yes, kind of a rib defect, yes. And it's, it's on a hexagonal. Hexagonal as well, so that the person, uh, you would know immediately that whatever was in the bottle, iodine, other things as well, um, that it was poisonous. And was iodine stronger in the olden days, Granny? Oh, iodine was a lot stronger in the olden days. They've watered it down so much. <laughs> it's hardly any good anymore. That that's right? your book there. It is. <laughs> that it they've is. watered down iodine. They have absolutely watered it down. And telling us, you know, to spray it, putting, uh, making it so it can be sprayed. But That's handy yes. for navels and things like that. It is, but it's not good enough a lot of the time because it's too weak. This way of doing it is a shallow cup, an old cup with uh, no handle on. Put your uh, little bit of iodine, you don't have to put a whole lot, in the bottom of the cup and then just put it on the calves' navel, just move it up and down and you, you cover every bit, not just one side. The whole thing is covered with iodine and I can assure you, you'll have no no um, swollen navel afterwards. Okay. 
As you know, Hannah, you know yourself. I know that we do have a broken handled teacup that we use exactly for that. Yes, I do know that. Uh, what else? Go on, give, give me a list since we're out in the shed and while we're at it. Say, for example, I vaccinate the calves for pneumonia um, when they're born or a couple of weeks after they're born. What would you be doing for, for treating pneumonia when uh, you were younger? Well, uh, I think uh, my mother would, she would definitely give them pochin. Pochin? Pochin, yes. Uh, that was a cure for all ills. And have they watered down the pochin as well, or is it just oh, the iodine? No, I don't know now, I wouldn't know. <laughs> but it wasn't watered down then, and uh, I think if it did anything, it just warmed them up and... Uh, Oftentimes, uh, you know, she was successful. She was very good at uh, dosing cattle and uh, she would dose the cattle. Now, I'm not quite sure what was in the dose. I have a feeling they used turpentine and something mixed, but I... That sounds I, a bit severe, Granny. Was that for pneumonia or what was that, that no, for? That wasn't for pneumonia, that would be for worms. Okay. For worms. And uh, she would use a portrait bottle, you know, the brown... Well, you probably. You so I'm going know. around with a snazzy plastic dosing gun and you're telling me that great granny, your yeah. mother used a glass, a glass porter bottle. Porter bottle, yes. And she had a technique, she was very good at it. And she would um, make sure that she did it very slowly so that it didn't go the wrong way. And uh, yeah, dose them. I can't really imagine doing that with a glass bottle and getting that down their throats and also not breaking the glass bottle. Well, you must remember that they were stalled for milking in wooden stalls. Do you know the old-fashioned wooden stalls? So, and, you know, they were dairy cows we were dealing with anyway. So, and dairy cows are by nature quiet and used to a routine. One incident in particular, uh, my father had a very sick cow, his best cow, and uh, he'd been looking after her and uh, he went out late at night to check her. And I remember him coming in and saying, um, she doesn't look good. He came out with this uh, saying that may the harm of the year go with her and he'd resigned himself to her dying, basically. And uh, he went out in the morning uh, to check the other cows, basically, and uh, came rushing in to tell us children as we were having breakfast that uh, the cow was standing up eating hay and she seemed to be fine and uh, he was delighted and we were all thrilled absolutely thrilled because that cow meant so much to the family and was it a litre or half a litre of pochine that was used in that cure oh I don't know <laughs> I wouldn't be able to say and I <laughs> no idea Probably a litre. <laughs> they wouldn't have spared it anyway, not that much. <laughs> <laughs> Catherine Quinn in conversation with her granddaughter Hannah Quinn Mulligan. And please don't try these remedies at home, especially the Puchin. This is all about history, not giving advice. And by the way, if you have memories of remedies used on your farm by previous generations of farmers, you can tweet us at RTE countrywide. Now, from its foundation in the 1880s to its winding down in the 1990s, the Land Commission was involved in the transfer of parcels of farming land in every part of Ireland. And in almost every family, there are stories of the land, 
land bought out from some landowners who were in farming and land funded by the Land Commission to allow other families to farm. And it's just been announced that some of the records of the Land Commission will be digitised in the coming years, giving historians search tools to access the wealth of information these records contain. Historians like Professor Paul Rouse, who's on his way, by the way, to a Saturday morning GA training session, but he's joining me now. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, Marty. Tell me, why was the Land Commission set up? Well, for more than 100 years, the Land Commission was the body responsible for redistributing farmland in Ireland. It was, as you said, set up in the 1880s in the aftermath of the land war. And it initially engaged in in fixing rents, that is to say fair rents, or what were termed as to be fair rents on farms. Now, it moved very quickly into the sale of farmland from landlords to their tenants. And essentially what was happening was that government finance, British government finance, was used to buy out the freehold of landlords and that was sold on to tenants who paid back the capital over a set period of of time. These are that anyone who knows about the history of of 20th century Ireland will know Mm. them as the famous land annuities. Mm. And by 1920, just on the cusp of the establishment of the Irish Free State, 13.5 million acres of, of Irish farmland had been redistributed in what was essentially a massive transfer of, of wealth within the country. And its work continued after the formation of the state, didn't it? Yeah, it, it's, it's really interesting because if you look at the vision of the, the, the revolutionaries or of at, at least a large section of the revolutionaries, it involved a country that would be backboned by prosperous farmers. So mm. farming was to be the economic engine of the country and of course it accounted for more than 50% of the Irish economy but it was to be more than an economic engine it was also to be a way of life that is to say it, it, it was to have a social and an economic purpose and it was in the Irish small farms that the Gaelic way of life as in the the, 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 the re-establishment and the reassertion of the Irish language across the country was to be safeguarded and to, to be developed and so the Land Commission played a role in this and it was reconstituted in 1923 and it set about redistributing land that was still held by landlords and it also set about redistributing what, were t- what was land which held by what were termed as graziers. And over the 1920s, you see the, 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 there was the, the redistribution of about half a million acres to 24,000 families mm. in, in the country and it was government policy to create small farms. And the core ambition here was to establish as many families on the land as possible. Yeah, and the farms it created were socially important. Part of a vision, indeed, as you said, of what an independent Ireland should look like. But were they economically viable? Oh, the problem was the the size of the small farms Mm. that were created. And they were so small, never at any point more than than 50 acres. And it it basically rendered them not just incapable of expansion, but increasingly incapable even of survival as the decades rolled on. It's, it's, It's fascinating to look even after the Second World War, after 1945, 25,000, almost 26,000 small farms were created by the Irish government. Mm. And this led to the creation of what um, a columnist in the Irish Farmers Journal uh, referred to in, in, in the 1950s as, the, as, as rural slums and what, what were termed the widespread fact of what was little more than subsistence farming. Mm. You know, politicians were often lobbied about the land. Do you think the land commission process was open to political influence? 
Well, politicians certainly uh, postured as if it was and the public believed that it was, but it would be uh, a slur and a calumny on, on officials of the Land Commission to believe that uh, they were they were uh, repeatedly influenced by, by politicians. But if you look at the private papers of some politicians. So I'll give you an example. Donnick O'Brien, uh, a Limerick TD who was um, Parliamentary Secretary to Eamon de Valera for, for a long time. He, his papers are held in the UCD archive and you see letters in those papers from uh, his constituents who were writing to him. Like, for example, a woman wrote to him um, in the 1930s pleading the case of her son who mm. was married with one child and she said, currently farmed eight acres of craggy land, which right. you may understand is hard to make a living on. I wonder if you can do anything for him to get a few more acres. So oh. this is the type of letter yeah. that was repeatedly, repeatedly written uh, to, to politicians. And you also had people involved in particular political parties writing to say, so for, say for example, you might write and say, well, uh, if you can't redistribute the, the, the land to one of our people, uh, at least don't give it to one of their people. Mm, mm. You know, we only have to think about uh, John B. Keane's play The Field to know the kinds of passions that land arouses in Ireland. Were there ever rows and bitterness over land commission decisions about land? I, I would I would flip that question and say, were, was there ever not rows and bitterness <laughs> over the, the, the redistribution of land and what happened? Mm. Because it, it's, it's not just that land meant wealth. For, for, for large sections of the time, land meant survival mm. and it meant a place in Ireland because, of course, the prospect of finding a job in industry was limited. There were a limited mm. number of people could work in the civil service. The professions were were small and closed and elite uh, in very many instances. And what you were left with was the ideal of of, of, of land and mm. where, where, where that is a means not just of thriving but also of survival. Then you get the core of understanding what lay at the heart of generational animosity, something that was handed down from, through the generations, a, a certain sense of bitterness in certain cases, or disappointment, mm. or, or, or remorse passed down um, uh, through the generations. I, I'm fascinated by this subject, Paul, because it kind of happened in my own family. When my grandfather passed away, my parents immigrated to New York and uh, my, my father was reported to the Land Commission for not using the land, not using the farm, and eventually sold it. Uh, that, that kind of was normal as well, wasn't it? It, it, it was. Um, one of the things that uh, the Land Commission tried to do, like you have to remember, Marty, in, in the 1960s, for example, one quarter of farm holdings in Connacht and Ulster were smaller than 15 acres. So during, during those years, Sean Lamass set up an interdepartmental committee to, to kind of look at their lot and to try and improve their lot. And one of the things that they tried to do was to get the Land Commission uh, to allow them to lend money to small farmers to buy land in different parts of the country and to move them there. But the Land Commission could also take over land that had not been used, or as to use the term derelict, for five years or, or more. And on top of that, so that's where your family story, mm. I think, sits with it, within that. Um, and, but it was also to encourage elderly farmers to sell their land mm. uh, to, to, to the Land Commission. And, and so there was a new wave of land settlement in, in, from the 1960s. As a historian, I presume you're anxious to see the records of the, of the Land Commission and I'm sure you're frustrated when you can't. Well, there was, there was a, a brilliant and really welcome story uh, broken by Irish, uh, in the Irish Times by Arthur Beasley just after, after Christmas where what is happening is the Land Commission records are held in a vast warehouse 
it's not actually clear exactly how many documents are there, probably up to 12 million. So there are tens and thousands of boxes held in, by the state and are not available to historians to look at or and, and ordinary members of the public to, to, to look at. Mm-hmm. And what, what the government has, has decided to do through Charlie McConlog and the Department of Agriculture, what they've, what they've decided to do is to digitise the search records of the Land Commission, which will at least allow us to know what, what's there and what's where. It is not a digitisation process at this point for mm. all the records. That would be too vast mm. uh, an exercise. But this is the first crucial step in allowing us understand what's there and, if truth be told, teasing us about yeah. the possibilities of, of what we might be able to find in the records if over time they, they are released. And they really should be released. It's, it's, it's the, the story of every parcel of land in Ireland lies in that warehouse. Well, we'll keep an eye on what's next uh, for the Land Commission uh, records, Paul. But in the meantime, I, I know uh, you're heading to the Phoenix Park. Who are you training this morning? Um, I'm training the under-16 and minor girls uh, of Oliver Plunkett's own Rua, which is the club on the Navan Road, if, uh, if, <laughs> if, if, if people are aware of it. And it's... Um, yeah, we're, we're, we're off to the Phoenix Park and, and uh, there's... Um, yeah, I can't wait. Actually, it's our, our first proper training session back and there's um, there's going to be a, a, a lot of uh, under 18 girls who will hate me in about an hour and a half time. <laughs> We're about to, they're about to visit a world of pain in the Phoenix Park. Well, I mean, in fairness, you were an, a former Offaly uh, manager uh, in the past, in the recent past. And of course, the entire GA family, uh, Paul, are thinking of Ashling Murphy and her family this morning. Uh, and I'm sure you are as well. Oh, I, I'm, Marty, an unspeakable tragedy and Ashley Murphy actually was teaching in 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 the school that I went to in Durham National School um, a fine school and the way she's spoken about by people who she worked with people in in the community people who knew her uh, she she seems so I didn't I didn't know her she seems to have been an outstanding woman and the, the tragedy for her family and her friends is difficult to difficult to comprehend mm. and I, I I the idea that we talk about her we're talking about her in the past tense is just it's 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 just appalling well we all pass on our sympathies to Ashley Murphy's family uh, this morning that was uh, Paul Rouse professor of history at UCD we let you go we know you've got training thank you very much Countrywide on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by the Irish Farmers Journal. Now with our highest ever readership of 321,000 weekly readers. Welcome back to Countrywide. Now, Fiona Murphy is an Irish-American. Her parents hail from County Mayo, but she now lives in Chicago. Every time she used to come home from America with her late father, he would stop at P. Moore's Pub in Swinford, County Mayo. Hail, rain or shine, morning, noon or night... He wouldn't pass P. Moore's pub without calling in. Last week, she posted a photo of this pub on Twitter and the mystery of her father's connection with this pub was revealed. It was a story that will resonate with so many families who've had young people immigrate, leaving home dependent on kindness for survival. And even, even though it's an ungodly hour in Chicago, Fiona joins me live to tell the story. Good morning, Fiona. Good morning, Marty. How are you doing I'm there? Ve- I'm very well indeed, and thank you indeed uh, for staying up uh, to join us this morning on Countrywide. Before we talk about the pub, Fiona, tell me about your own connections to Ireland. 
Well, it's uh, it's really a it's been a home away from home for me throughout my childhood. My parents would send me back for summers, and as an only child here, I would go over to Tubber Curry uh, to our cousins who had eight kids. Mm. The six six el- eldest were boys in the GAA, so I had part of the year being an only child, and then I became the youngest of nine for a few months in the summer. So it really served to give me uh, survival training for life in many ways. We we have a lot in common, actually, you being an only child as well and coming home on holidays. Obviously, those days with the cousins were special. They were, they were very special. I think it wasn't something, like many things, that I truly appreciated at the time. Uh, I loved it, but I didn't know the value it would have to me until I was older and mm-hmm. a parent myself and especially losing my father. That became the link to a family that I never knew how much I always needed. Mm. Now, your father never passed P. Moore's Pub in Swinford, County Mayo, without dropping in. Did you know why he why he called in there? Well, I think I like, was like many young people. I knew on at the time it was somewhere in that big old brain of mine somewhere floating around, but you don't know when your parents are telling you these stories mm. and you're a teenager, even your young 20s, you're very focused on yourself and you always think there will be more time to circle back and hear it again or ask about it. And so it was in there, but like many things, when I lost him 23 years ago, you know, your brain is this magnificent beast and it takes things that are painful to you that are too much to process at the time and it kind of tucks them away into a closet in your mind, shuts the door and it says, I'll, I'll get to that later when I'm able to handle it so that right now I can stay off my knees. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of kept on going like that and it was tossed into that closet behind that door until this last trip when I finally was able to bring myself to walk in and ask about it. And tell me the story of your dad. What did you discover? Well, he had, you know, he was like many in his generation. He didn't talk too much about himself and loved to hear the stories of other people. That was a very, a very central part of my father, the importance of stories. He used to quote um, Arabian Nights that stories are the communal currency of humanity. So he would love to sit and listen to everybody else's. And what I learned when I, um, it was actually, I'd, I went into P. Moore's and the young man behind the, the bar was a, a bit too young to have remembered my father. And I walked across the street to Campbell's in Swinford. And all it took was the proprietor of, of Campbell's saying, well, you know, maybe he knew Patty from when Patty was on a job site in England. And it was that instant. It was as if I had kicked open a door in my head and it all came out. My father, and it was my father almost almost literally it felt like next to me telling me the story again. I could Mm. hear it in his voice. When he was 14, he had had to leave Charlestown for his first of several immigrations to go to England to work on a... 14? Yeah, 14. 14. Uh, It's really hard to comprehend, Mm. I think, for any of us. You know, much like... I, when I think about Ashling Murphy and what her family is going through, I can feel 
the pain, and mm. I can imagine it, but I've never buried a child. Mm. There is, uh, so I, I look as a respectful observer on how can we honor these kinds of, of traumas that, that people have gone through. And he left at 14, and when he left, he had just been coming out of polio. So he was coughing up blood, he could barely stand, but his mother, he was an only child himself, his mother depended on the paycheck. And Patty Moore had been his higher up, his boss there on the site, and used to hide him um, whenever the top bosses would come around. He would say, you know, oh, John Murphy just went off on an errand for me. He'll be back soon. So that really my father could continue receiving that paycheck. This child, you know, mm. that's what I have to remember. I picture my father's face, but <laughs> this was a child I never knew, this version of my father. He saved this child's life because this child would have kept trying to do the job to send that paycheck home. And he really would have worked himself into a grave over there. And instead, the kindness of this man, the decency of this man saved my father's life. And, you know, I look at my own three children now who are young adults, and we are all here because of the kindness of this man. And Kieran, son of the man who helped out your dad all that uh, long time ago, he got in touch, didn't he? The moment that he posted on Twitter, and first of all, you know, I have to say, in my mind, I'm still a child in Charlestown standing outside Tony Collins's shop as one of my parents places a phone call to the overseas operator. And then we wait half an hour until a line becomes free to the United States to call. I can't believe we're having these conversations on Twitter. It is magnificent. But when Kieran Moore posted that he saw this and it brought him to tears, because of his pro how proud he was of his father. That was it. I, I think I, I cried the ty type of tears that like a teenage girl cries where you can't catch your breath. I was so profoundly impacted by the connection and selfishly, honestly, I, it, it was almost this primal feeling of, oh my God, I, I'm really not alone. I'm mm -hmm. over here in Chicago. Um, my my father's gone, but I'm not alone. He's still here. We all have one another's stories, and that's been um, a very a very affecting mm. few weeks for me. It's really brought up a lot of the importance of the small towns in Ireland. Of there are people in Charlestown and Swinford who have my stories, and I have theirs, and mm. we carry them around in one another's pockets, and it is. It is the one of the greatest assets of Ireland is the small towns. That's really, yeah, uh, really uh, it. And I can, I can feel your love and your passion, and it's the beauty of Ireland, I suppose, that family when we, when we embrace each other. I'd just like to quote from your social media post, which obviously went viral. This, my friends, is but one of the incalculable values that small towns offer us in 2022. They hold our past for us until we are ready to carry it forward ourselves. That's, you, you've, you've explained it, and, and I understand it, but just give me an insight into why you posted that. Why did you feel it necessary? I think for me it is, and I have felt this even as a child, I just didn't know how to describe it every time I went back to Ireland. And the fact that, listen, there were 11 million tourists that went to Ireland in 2019, so I'm far from alone in feeling what it's like to experience the small towns of Ireland. But I have long felt that Ireland doesn't see her own worth. I wish she did. There is nowhere like a small town in Ireland. And I think there is almost a, 
a post-colonial trauma where the people of Ireland have gone through so much that they're grateful for, you know, whatever they do have instead of being able to stand up and claim their full worth. And I... I look at, you know, all of the, there are, there are thousand, over a thousand mm. multinational companies that look at Ireland and see the value as, you know, one of the number one places to invest in because they know that they can bring people from all over the world and settle them in Ireland and these people will, will immediately feel like home. And you know, Fiona, on these dark winter days, can I say to you that you've, you've shone a light because sometimes we need somebody from outside looking in although you're one of us, to remind us of the importance of community in towns. And you've done that, and we thank you. And thank you indeed uh, for talking to us on Countrywide this morning. And good morning to all the cousins in Mayo, and indeed in Chicago. And if you want to read Fiona's thread, she's on Twitter at uh, Jen X Banshee, a story of survival and kindness. Thank you so much, Fiona. Now, uh, earlier in the programme, we were talking about the winter lull in the work of many farms. But on dairy farms, things might be quite on the surface. But underneath, dairy farmers are deep in preparation for calving. Joining me to reflect on spring calving 2022 are three dairy farmers, Gillian O'Sullivan, Linda O'Neill, who are neighbours in County Waterford, I believe, and Louise Crowley, farming in County Limerick. You are all very welcome. Thanks, Marty. Good morning to you all. Uh, can I start with you, Gillian, and just give us a very brief synopsis of, of your farm and, and yourself? Sure, yeah. Um, I'm farming here with uh, my husband, Neil, and my father, uh, Michael, and we have uh, just a, a hundred cows of a, a dairy farm here. And we're at the moment, you speak of the lull in the um, in the calendar, and, and for we say our cows went dry at the end of, of November. So throughout December, we just took, we really, you know, put our feet off, the alarm clocks are turned off and we're enjoying those um, later mornings uh, when we don't have to milk. Mm. Uh, but just about now we're beginning to um, y- y- just prepare ourselves, prepare the farm, checking, you know, I heard the, the milking parlour being turned on the other day to see that everything was working and serviced and just getting ready to ramp up to go from USA a few hours a day of work up to which will be in February, maybe up to 16, 18 hours a day at a time. <laughs> so you're painting a lovely picture. I, I, I get this idea that you've been scrubbing everything inside, Gillian. Can you describe <laughs> the work of the past week or so? Well, you, you might not want to look in the dishwasher times here, but um, there, yeah, so I guess everything has to be prepared and cleaned down. So all the feeders, all the housing, um, all the milk, the milking parlour have to be serviced to make sure that it's in, in full working order. And you just get all these, it's, so because the days become very, very busy and hectic, um, to have those, all that preparation done, preparation is key to having a successful calving mm-hmm. season. So uh, as well as that, then you have to stock up the freezer and the fridge because uh, all that extra work brings, and um, burning extra calories brings um, <laughs> certainly maybe five or six large meals in the day, I realise. <laughs> <laughs> They've got to be catered for as well. You've, you've seen calves being born since you were a child, uh, Gillian. Can you describe the excitement, both then and now, of that first calf arriving? Oh, Marty, it's, it's, I remember when I was small, so we, uh, they, uh, on our, our farm here, there was um, a small little calving shed. And the way the sheeting, the, the galvanized sheeting would come down and meet the wall at the side, there was a tiny gap of about an inch in the side. And I, when springtime would kick in and there was a cow inside there, we'd be told on the yard, you know, be quiet now, let, let her at it. But mm. it was a perfect vantage point where you could just step up on a little wall and peek through this one inch gap 
and you could see the whole thing going on. So mm-hmm. You had this wonderful viewing platform that was totally quiet and secluded, and you could watch the whole process, so from the tail lifting to the little wow. two feet appearing and the head coming out, and then the whole thing, and it was magical. And it, it actually, that, that, you know, it still remains magical today. And I remember when we had uh, a German girl on our farm, and she was, uh, she was helping out here as an au pair, and we even had her caught up in the um, in the fun of it. She used to run from the table. She'd hear a cow calving, and she'd run from the table up onto the yard just to see the whole thing. It is a magical process, and, and uh, so we're very fortunate to, um, to 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 be able to to experience it year in year out. Yeah, and you still have that love, obviously, of the farm and of land. That's Gillian O'Sullivan, uh, Louise uh, Crowley. Uh, you're farming in County Limerick. Tell me about your farm. Yeah, so um, I'm farming here in partnership with my dad, John. We're calving down 180 cows this year and um, all spring calving and we already have three calves. Already? Yeah, so uh, we started a small bit earlier than I suppose the traditional dairy farm with the the 1st of February start. So um, we have three arrivals on the ground. I, I, I know you were counting down to the first calf arriving around the 20th, I think, of this month, but a cow due on the 23rd gave you a surprise this week on the 12th. Is that correct? Yeah, so uh, we scan all our cows so that we, we know when their due dates are and we know some of the cows if they're having a male or a female. Mm. And when it comes to cows, generally you can say they'll probably come, they could come a week early. Uh, it's kind of a, an unwritten rule. There, you need to be planned earlier than you think they're coming. Mm. Um, but yeah, it was a surprise. We we had uh, one come 12 days early and we had one yesterday come uh, 14 days early. Oh my gosh, fantastic. I, I know some people, I think your dad uses the phrase, lay a hand on a cow when she's close to calving. What, what exactly are you looking for? So when... They're getting close to calving. You'll see their udder start to, to fill up with the, the claustrum for the calf. And they're getting ready for the arrival of the calf. And you, when you walk through the cows, you check them to see if you notice any changes in mm. their behaviour. And then their pin bones are either side of their tail. And the closer they get to calving, they start to, to drop down. It's basically they're just making room for the calf to actually come out. So... Dad would be better at it than I would be. It's, he's a lot more experienced at it. But you, you just put your hand on him and give him a feel and you'll, mm-hmm. you'll notice, if you're checking him a couple of times a day, you'll notice the change in them. Isn't nature wonderful, Louise? Just uh, fantastic. It's amazing um, how cows go about calving mm. and, you know, we're lucky we don't have to do a whole pile to assist them. They, they know the routine. It all comes naturally to them. And I presume it is Sod's law that you can watch a cow all day, but the calf will be born the minute your back is turned. Oh, I can guarantee. And it's usually it's all night you're watching them. <laughs> and it'll come to the, the morning when you started doing the, the, the routine day jobs. The next thing you turn and you've, you've a calf waiting for you. Fantastic. I, I, I presume now you have the milking parlour back in action. For how many cows did you say? Yeah, milking parlour is back up now, running for the last three days. We have three cows in total, so three calves to be fed. Well, well you're busy, obviously, uh, Louise. Uh, and thank you so much for describing and again giving us that uh, insight into, into your life. Uh, Linda Crowley, you're farming in County Limerick, I believe. Um, tell me all about 
Linda and uh, Linda O'Neill, I should say. Sorry, Linda O'Neill, Martin. Yeah, yeah, I've got my Louises and my Lindas all mixed up. No Linda O'Neill, neighbours in County Waterford. Tell me about your farm, uh, Linda. Uh, yeah, Marty, I'm originally uh, probably slightly different to the two ladies. Um, I'm on a lease dairy farm in Dungarvan in County Waterford. I'm originally from um, Castletown Bear in West Cork, so moved down to Waterford and uh, was originally a farm manager in, in Mount Mallory Abbey for the, the monks and le- subsequently then leased a dairy farm outside Dungarvan. And I'm in partnership there with Pat Ryan and we milk 180 cows on, on that farm. Are you a neighbour of Gillian's then? Neighbour of Gillian's, yeah. Gillian's only across the way from me, up up on the hill. We can I can see Gillian's you farm from from our own farm. Yeah, you can wave to each other. Now, yes, uh, I, I, I could well imagine it's it's uh, very busy, particularly at this time of the year, and you need extra extra labour. Are you hoping that all the arrangements will be in place? I believe there's uh, somebody joining you this week. Yeah, that's week? correct, Marty. Yeah, um, I have a farm manager employed full time. He's Hungarian. He's actually just been away on holidays for the last two weeks. So on our farm, it's been quite really, um, I'm just building up the, the jobs for next week when he gets back. We're due to officially start calving on the 5th of February. Mm. So um, we have a good bit of work ahead of us next week in terms of getting the animal health. We'll um, we'll vaccinate the cows and dose the cows and make sure that that's all covered to get the, the cow ready. And um, then after that, we'll start to get our calf houses ready, disinfection and cleaning. We have a lot of it done, but we do it. We're quite precise on the hygiene, so we actually go over it all a second time. It would have been done last season when we finished calving, but we go over it all again and do it a second time. And um, yeah, there's a new new team member joining us then. Hopefully by the 1st of February, we'll, we'll have a second person on board to, to help for the spring workload because oh, it's going to be a busy six weeks. Absolutely. I was just going to say that. It is a busy time of the year and tiring. Is that a real consideration when it comes to health and safety for everyone working on the farm? Yeah, it is. Um, I suppose that would always be at the front of my mind, the health and safety of the team. And in terms of getting their time off, um, even though it's a very busy time, um, we run a rostered system where everybody gets their time off, which is crucially important that they have that rest break. And um, yeah, they, they can't be expo- expected to work 24-7 or, or you will have you will mm-hmm. have incidents on farm that, that just wouldn't wouldn't work, you know. And, and Linda, was the pattern of calving different to your father's farm in, in West Cork? Was there a difference? Yeah, I suppose uh, growing up in West Cork, we would have had a split calving system where we were calving in the autumn and in the spring. And we also lamb sheep as well. So the workload was spread across the season. Um, so every day was probably a busy day. But um, when when, I, when we moved down to Dungarvan, um, I was quite focused on the spring calving system after spending some time farming in New Zealand as well. And we calve now uh, to grass. So that would be a huge focus, I suppose. We do grass measurementing get the cows calved compactly in six weeks and mm. get them out to grass, which is the, the cheapest and most sustainable feed to, to feed the cows, you know. Now, hundreds of thousands of cows will be born in Irish dairy farms over the next couple of months. And they're, they're, they are a big policy issue here and in Europe. Indeed, the European Parliament will debate banning the transport of animals under five weeks of age this week. And we will come back to this policy issue here on Countrywide here on Radio 1. But Gillian, at the level of your own farm, how do you manage cows and provide them with a sustainable pathway? Yeah, that's a great question, Marty. And, and we have changed our breeding strat- strategy over the last couple of years. To, so we focus on generating better replacement heifers from, let's say, the elite cows on our farm. And using that, with, um, we've, we've done that through using newer technologies such as sex semen and um, using things like sense of cow monitoring collars to make sure that you're, you're using sex semen 
in the optimum time window mm. for, for um, success. And at the same time, then, so then it's helped us to focus um, with sex semen. You're just, you know, you're, you're the semen assorted, so you're getting a um, female heifer calf, a female calf there for where you're, you're producing next generation of milking cows. And when you can do that and focus it on the best cows in the herd, that means that the remainder of the herd, so we'll have over two-thirds of our um, cows this year will be are in calf to either beef AI um, or a beef stock bull. So that's creating um, much higher quality beef coming from the dairy herd, which is you know, it's a better and more sustainable product all around. And Linda O'Neill, all, all of you have used sex semen to breed the best dairy cows. Is this the future, uh, do you think, for, for dairy production, dairy operation? Yeah, Marty, I definitely believe it is. I suppose I have a background in genetics. I worked with LIC Ireland for a number of years as well. So I've quite a passion on on Mm. breeding and genetics. And um, sex semen was in its infancy when I started with LIC, I suppose, back in 2011. And um, it's it's huge now. And I see it as being hugely important to that, like Gillian said, we have our best cows and breed our very best cows to dairy replacements. So we're generating elite animals for the future herd. And then those cows that... um, that aren't as high genetic merit within our herds, we're breeding those to beef. And um, yeah, it's just a very sustainable breeding plan. I I firmly believe it's the future for our industry. And uh, Louise Crowley, your bull calves go to beef calf rearer locally. Is it difficult to find farmers to rear bulls to two years of age? Not really. Like It's a situation where, you know, you can look around and kind of, I suppose, suss out people, are they interested? And we do that where you know, our bull calves are all sold to, to people that we'd know and that we know are, are good farmers and are going to rear them to the highest standards because at the end of the day, we keep them for between uh, maybe a month or six weeks. And I've put a lot of time into rearing them to that stage. Mm. So you, you want them to get the, the best afterwards. So there, there is a market out there. There is people that are looking for Frisian bull calves um, there, there can be a, a living made off of them as well. And Louise, when the calving season is, is finished, what will happen then? What's your plan? So we hope to be finished the calving season the first week of April. There's about 10 days of, I suppose, a, a break between calving and then we're into the next job, which is breeding all the cows and putting them back in calf again for 2023. And how about you, Linda? Would you think about going on a holiday if if we were allowed with COVID and everything? Absolutely, Marty. That's actually the first, probably, you'd say we have a busy week ahead of us next week. But when my manager comes back, every time he comes back after holidays, we sit down, we plan the next break. And we all know when it's coming up, uh, each of us will take a week off um, post-calving and pre-breeding. And that's a refresher for everyone. And hopefully this year, Marty, it might be booking a flight. Yeah, all going well. well. And Gillian, any plans for... Oh, it's, it's that, that as just as just as Linda said there, that that window of opportunity to take a break, you have to grab it with both hands because you do work hard enough when, when at the busy times of the year. But do uh, making making the most of downtime is is very important just to recharge the batteries again. So absolutely, um, it, it, it's always time to pencil in something to get off the farm. Well, I know the next couple of weeks are going to be very busy and I think uh, you've described both your love of what you do and also uh, how busy it's going to be in the next couple of weeks. And we wish all of you, Gillian O'Sullivan, Louise Crowley and Linda O'Neill, good luck with all the work in the coming weeks. And thank you for joining us on Countrywide. Now, new life on the farm is a sign of spring and of hope. And yet this past week has been difficult for so many people. There is a weariness and a sadness about the place, a sense of grief at the loss of Ashling Murphy. 
there are no easy answers. We went to our archives to see if we could find something that would offer you comfort this morning. Wendell Berry is a Kentucky farmer and poet. He's written about these moments when we wake in the night full of fear and worry and how in these times of trouble the natural world can provide us with consolation. In his kitchen on his farm, he sat with Ella McSweeney and read for her his poem, The Peace of Wild Things. When despair for the world grows in me and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world and am free. That was the piece of Wild Things by poet Wendell Berry. Thank you for listening this morning. I hope in the course of today, seeing the early shoots of uh, spring bulbs, noticing the sky, hearing a robin sing, will bring you some peace too. Brian Moss was our broadcast coordinator. Dave Gibson was on sound and Eileen Heron produced. Playback is up next after the news. Ear to the Ground continues its season on Thursday night on RT1 television at 7 o'clock. And good news, Damien will be with you next week. And until we speak again, good morning. Countrywide on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by the Irish Farmers Journal. Pick up this week's paper to find out what the future of your farm payments will look like. 